And now if you have children between the ages of four and six, you may send them with Mrs. Klotz to children's worship training. They're also welcome to stay here with you. As we turn together to the book of Acts, the fourth chapter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 4, 23 to 31. Before I read the text, just as a quick reminder of where we are, this is in the early days of the church. It is perhaps not two or three months distant from the crucifixion. The church has been brought together. The Holy Spirit has come down upon them on Pentecost. The church is exploding in its growth. It is perhaps now ten to 20,000, where it was a few months ago, but 120. And recently we have been seeing that as Peter and John, two of the apostles, went to the temple to pray, they healed a man who had been lame from birth. And as a result, they were dragged in before the Sanhedrin, that is the court of the Jews. And after having been threatened, they are sent away. That is where our text picks up this morning at verse 23. If you would please give attention to the Word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would use Your Word by Your Spirit in our lives. That You would instruct us in what we are to believe but also, Lord, that You would instruct us what we are to do. We thank You, Lord, for Your mercy and Your grace. 
And we thank you for this opportunity to meet you in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a close call? You know, like perhaps the time where you decided skiing might be a good idea. And as you went hurtling down the hill, narrowly missing large trees, when you reached the bottom, what did you say to yourself? I think I'll do that again. No, you said, that fireplace looks awfully nice. I think I'll go sit over there. Or perhaps as you were driving, you narrowly missed being in a fatal accident. Perhaps someone was coming at you head on or was sideswiping you near a cliff road. And after you've escaped it, you pull off to the side, hands shaking, and you wonder what you're going to do, how you're going to keep driving. Or maybe it's something that happens sometimes to children. When you do something that you know you shouldn't be doing, and you escape disaster or catastrophe, and you say to yourself between pleaded prayers to God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll never do that again. Churches go through this as well. As they decide, for example, to embark on a building campaign with all of its difficulties and challenges. And you say, I hope we don't have to do that for another 20 years. This is what happens often when we come against a close call that takes us out of our comfort zone, that reminds us that we are not in control. How should the church react when it has these kinds of close calls? Well, this morning we're going to see how not just Peter and John, but the entirety of the church reacts to a very close call. You see, for all they knew, James, or excuse me, Peter and John were going to be killed for preaching Jesus. And they had been forbidden from preaching Jesus. And so they leave the trial, they go back, and they find a solution in their fear. And so what I would like us to see this morning are four things. First, I would like us to see the church in need as Peter and John make their report. And then secondly, we will see the Lord who supplies as the church turns to their Lord in their need. And then I would like us to see, this is a wonderful instance in which we have in the same text, not only the prayer itself that is made, but immediately the answer that is given to the prayer. So we'll look at the church, the Lord, the prayer, and the answer. Let's begin then by looking at the church in need. This is a church that is in need. They are still small. They are still overwhelmed. They are still located generally in the area of Jerusalem and Judea. And they are under threat from the authorities. And Peter and John leave. And what do they do when they are in need? Well, the first thing that we see is, is that the church in its need places a priority on relationship. You see this immediately from verse 23. When they are released, what do they do? Do they go and hide and lay low? Do they go sit somewhere till the shaking leaves? Do they even go back out into the temple and say, look, we were let free? No, what they do is they go back 
to their own. They returned to their own. When the text says here, they went to their friends, the word here for friends is the word that is often used for one's own something. If you wanted to say your own car, you would use this adjective. If you wanted to say your own house, you would use this adjective. And so what they do is they return to their people. They return to the church. This is not just a group. This is their community. This is their family. And that's the first thing that they do in the midst of their struggle. And this is important for us because it reminds us that from its very days, the church is a place of community. It is a place where friends are found, where support is found. It is a place where we go to seek support in our lives. Is that what church means to you? You see, church is much more than simply coming and sitting together corporately in a pew. Church is a place where we come together to be with one another so we can be supported, so that we know others are around us. But it's not just that unseen support that they seek. They also seek guidance from the church. You see, Peter and John have answered the Sanhedrin, but they know they don't have all the answers. They are the leaders of this church, but they know they do not have a monopoly on wisdom. So what they do is they come back to the church and they report what has happened. You see that in verse 23? They want to tell the church everything that has happened, not just to inform them, but also so that they can gain understanding and wisdom from the rest of the church. You've done that, haven't you? You have a big decision to make or a big problem and you speak to someone that you know wasn't there because you want to get an independent assessment. That's what the church is providing here for Peter and for John. You see, they want to be with God's people more than anything. And this relationship shows itself not just in their desire to be with God's people, but it shows itself in what happens immediately after the report. Peter and John come back. They report what had been said to them. And then when they, that is the entire church, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. You see that? They didn't form a committee. They didn't try and come up with a strategic plan. What they did was they went to the Lord their God in prayer together. And, and the way they do it is fascinating. You see how it says, they heard it and they lifted their voices together? You would think that it would be other verses that would cause all kinds of difficulties for commentators. But this verse throws them into a tizzy. Well, what does this mean? Did they have this prayer memorized? Is that how they could all say it? Did they do the thing where someone speaks a line and everyone repeats it? How could they possibly do this? How could they be all together? Was this a liturgical form? But you see, in reality, this is not about them saying the exact same words at the same time. What this is about is them gathering together corporately to lift up their hearts to be of one mind and one heart in their prayer. They are all in this together, and they know it. There is no party spirit here in the church. There is no desire to be one up 
of another in the church. They are all together. They are of one accord. This word here for together is the word we have seen before. With one accord. We saw it when they sought the Lord for Judas' replacement. We saw it when they were gathered together for prayer before Pentecost. They are of one accord and they are together. They are of one voice, the Greek says. They're not voices. They are of one voice. They are of one mind. This is not dissimilar to the way the church can act today. It is not a coincidence. It is not merely stylistic that after the opening prayer, I say the words that I did and all God's people said, Amen. You see, the corporate Amen is something that the church has gotten away from. It doesn't need it because we are all merely bunches of individuals. But you see, the reason for the corporate amen is to let everyone know that we are together with what has been prayed. When we pray that God would come down by His Spirit, when we pray that God would meet with us in His Word, when we pray that God would lift up our hearts in praise, and we all say together, Amen. We are of one voice. We are of one accord. That's what's happening here in the church. They're gathered together. They have the priority of relationship, but they also have, as you can see easily, they have a priority of prayer. It is, after all, the first thing that they do. They are gathered together, and they then begin to pray. Do you notice the immediacy of the prayer? There's no discussion. What should we do? What did you say? What will our plan be? Their first thought in the midst of a great crisis, and make no mistake, this is a great crisis, is to go to the Lord who supplies their needs. Now, but notice what they do not pray for. This is a very untypical prayer for a 21st century American. They have just met hostility from the government. And they have just met persecution from the religious order. And they do not pray for judgment on their enemies. Do you notice that? How often in your heart is the first place that you turn when you hear about all of the horrors that go out in our community, that go on in our nation, is to pray for judgment to rain down on the heads of our persecutors. If you don't, then I'm guessing to some extent you're not quite human. Because I struggle with that all the time. It's natural for us. We face a difficulty, we face opposition, we want the opposition to be removed. And we want it to be removed so that God's word would go forward. But you see, that is not where the church begins. They could easily have prayed, Lord, strike down this Sanhedrin. It is certainly within your power. Have the Romans remove them. Take this barrier out of our way. And while you are at it, strike down the Roman governor. After all, he crucified the Lord of glory. Wipe out our enemies, O Lord. How often is that our prayer? Notice the second thing they don't pray for. If you thought the first was convicting, the second will really get you. 
They don't pray that the persecution would be removed. Do you notice that? There's no prayer that they might avoid persecution. Again, this is natural to us. We might say, oh Lord, please give us grace and wisdom that we might not be attacked again or pulled out while we are preaching your word. Please protect your people from the persecution that is evident. But you see, that's not their first thought either. They're not praying for judgment and they're not praying to avoid persecution. So what are they praying for? They are praying that they would have a dependence upon God. That's where they begin. They begin with saying, Lord, the problem is with us. It is not with the persecutors. It is not with those who are withstanding us. The problem is with us, O Lord. We need to depend upon you in order to have this mission succeed. And so they pray for themselves. And they pray to say that they are dependent upon God. They are dependent upon God to protect them. They are dependent upon God to carry out the mission that He has given to them. And they pray to God to remind themselves, as we shall see in a minute, that God is stronger than their enemy. Is that the kind of prayer that you pray? You see, you can't wish enemies away, can you? But you can remind yourself that God is stronger than any enemy. God is stronger than the devil. God is stronger than death itself. God can certainly take care of a few chief priests and elders. And so they pray to be strengthened. And they pray this in a corporate way. It is not just the sum of individual needs or the sum of individual prayers. This is a corporate prayer because they want to know that the mission that they are corporately involved in is going forward. This is something the church needs to find more in its praying vocabulary. We do an excellent job of praying for someone who has an operation upcoming or who is sick or who might be traveling. But do we do a good job of praying that the gospel would sweep through Katie? Do we do a good job of praying for the people who will live in the homes once they are built, after the roads are finished, that they will be found in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we can minister to them? This should be a part of our prayer for the next two or three or four years. This is corporate prayer for the need of the community, for the mission that goes forward. Well, this is the church that is in need. It is a church much like we are. We are in need as well. And so where they turn is the same place that we should turn. That is to the Lord who supplies. Look with me at verse 24, the second half of the verse. They lift up their voices and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They begin with a very odd address. It's hard for us to see this because of the English, but I'm guessing if you flip through your Bibles, you will not find the phrase Sovereign Lord in exactly that way very often. The word here is not the normal word that is used for Lord or even for King. It is the word that we get our English despot from. You know what a despot is? Someone who runs 
Perhaps a third world country controls the press, controls the army, brooks no opposition, has every bit of authority in himself. There's no Supreme Court. There's no legislature. His word is law. Now, this word in this time in the Greek language has all of the connotations of authority, but none of the negatives that we place with this. And so it can be used of God. It's actually a liturgical form that is used in the Old Testament fairly often. You see, when they say Sovereign Lord, the whole idea here is an appeal to authority, to God's authority. They want to know that God is in control. That in the midst of the chaos of life, that there is control found in God. They need to know that there is no one stronger than God. Is that applicable today? Now, we haven't been out in the temple courts. We haven't been dragged into the Sanhedrin. But all you need to do to be reminded of that is turn on your television. Or pick up a newspaper. While oil gushes. While allies are angered. While armies move. While diseases rage. While weather and storms bluster. While our economy shakes, everything around us is unsecure. And the way to find security is not in manipulating your circumstances. It is in looking to the one who is in control of all the chaos. And to be reminded that it's not really chaos. Because it's in his hand. This is the sovereign Lord that they pray to. And they remind themselves that God is in control of all this chaos because God is the one who has created everything. Look at what they say. You, O Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is language that occurs over and over again in the Old Testament. That as God's people face challenges and trials, they remind themselves that there is not one square inch of the earth over which the Lord does not say, Mine. That every bit of creation is under His authority. That it all sprang from the very word of His power out of nothing. God is in complete control. We experience this in our own lives, don't we? One of the ways that we comfort our children is to remind them where they are. That they're in our home. Where we know what's in the closet. We know there's nothing under the bed. We've looked there before. This is our place. You know the old cliche, a man's home is his castle? It really is. It's a place where we feel safe. And what the church is doing here is reminding themselves that there is no place that they can go where they are not safe. Because it is all the Lord's. He is in complete control. The Lord is the one who is in control of the chaos, but He is also the one who speaks His Word in the midst of the whirlwind. You see, God is always with us by means of His Word. In the midst of this storm that they are facing, they remind themselves that God has spoken. Do you see that? They address Him as Sovereign Lord. They address Him as Creator. And then they remind themselves that through the mouth of their father David, God's servant, He spoke by the Holy Spirit. 
This reminder is that when the Bible speaks, it is God who speaks. The Bible is not just some book. It is not just a place to find witty aphorisms. If you want witty aphorisms, go buy a bag of chocolates, open them up, and read the little sayings that are on the wrappers. Your life will be bright with a smile. The Bible is not that. The Bible is the place where God comes down and speaks to us and tells us His very will. It is a place where all of our answers are found. Where we know that we are His and He is ours. And that is where they turn. You see, in the midst of this prayer, they turn to the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures and prayer go together. The Bible informs us how we are to pray. And our prayers are that the things that are in the Scriptures would be fulfilled. The Word of God joins for us the power of God and the will of God. You know, it's like this. Have you ever been reminded that there was someone who could help you in a certain situation? They could give you money you need for an operation. They could help you to repair something in your home that's causing damage. They could educate your children. But you need to know not just that they can do it, but that they will do it. That is what the church is reminding itself here. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He has created everything. And we remind ourselves that God acts for His people. And they remind themselves that God has done this. They go back to the united opposition. They say to themselves, O Lord, this is nothing new. It's nothing new to us that the Sanhedrin and the Romans would gather together to try and squash your gospel. Because after all, Lord, in this very city, your holy servant Jesus was opposed by Pilate and by Herod. Now, this is remarkable. This would be far, far more unimaginable than the most rigid Republican and the most rigid Democrat coming together to author legislation. I mean, we look at that now. We look at our Congress and we say, well, we know how everyone's going to vote. We know which sides they're on. But this was doubly true. Pilate and Herod were two of the most dissimilar men that had ever existed. One was a Roman governor. The other was king over the Jews. One was a stoic man, a military man, a precise man. The other was a party animal. All he liked to do was eat, drink, and be merry. For Pilate, family would have been of a high priority. Herod murdered his own family when it suited him. You see, these are not the type of people that you would expect to be friends on Facebook. They probably wouldn't even send email directly to each other. They would send it through an intermediary. But they both had the same united opposition to Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that the incident that describes Pilate sending Jesus to Herod only occurs in one gospel. 
Can you guess which gospel it is? It's Luke's. You see, Luke understood that that was an important part of the story because of Acts 4. Because the church was reminding itself that in this very city, opposition that was united and was unlikely had happened to the Lord Jesus and it could not defeat Him. And so they remind themselves that this kind of opposition cannot defeat them either. Why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of earth set themselves and the rulers be gathered together against the Lord? Why is this? Is it because they hate Jesus? Yes. Is it because they hate the church? Yes. Is it because they're independent and trying to throw a monkey wrench into God's plan? No. Because you see, this opposition occurred, look with me here at verse 28, to do whatever your hand, Lord, and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, that opposition was a part of God's plan. He was in control. It was predestined. And so they can say to themselves that the Sanhedrin are not running amok. That this persecution is not outside of God's sight. This is a part of God's plan. He is going to use it for the furtherance of His kingdom. And that's not wishful thinking. They can point back and they can say, Look, O Lord. Look what You did. We trust You to do it now. Do you pray that way? Do you look back to the opposition of Herod and Pilate? Do you look back to this opposition? Because as we turn the pages in weeks to come, we will see the persecution ramp up and we will see the church grow and expand and turn the world upside down because of the persecution. God knows what He's doing. He is in complete control. The church is in need. The Lord is the one that they turn to to supply that need. And look at the way that they ask the Lord to supply. We've already said that they don't pray for judgment. They don't pray to avoid persecution. They pray for two things. They pray that the Lord would give them boldness. And they pray that the Lord would show His power in their midst. Now, Understand the context of this prayer. They are relying upon the past promises of God. And they are relying on the recent fulfillment of that promise. They can look back and say, the Lord was there in the midst of the struggle with Pilate and Herod. And because of that, they have a future expectation that God will deliver. They have seen Him provide boldness. And so what they pray is, that the Lord would look upon the threats that have been given and that they would grant to His servants, they would grant them to speak your word with all boldness. You see, they are relying upon the power and love of God to give them boldness to speak His word. The same kind of boldness that Peter had. You see, they're not just asking for a lack of silence. They're not asking for a footnote in an article. They're not asking for a quiet corner. 
They're not asking to be able to speak freely in their homes. They're asking for boldness to go out into the temple, to go before the Sanhedrin, to go before the Roman governors, and to say, Jesus is Lord. They want the kind of boldness that will turn the world upside down. And there's great irony here. They say, Lord, please grant it to Your servants, Your slaves, to have the kind of boldness that free men in Greece have. To speak their mind and not be beaten. To know that they will be heard. They're praying for boldness. But they're praying for boldness not to speak what's in their heart. They're praying for boldness to speak God's Word. And that's important. Because too often the church wants boldness to speak its own Word. The church especially the church that has made itself manifest as being unfaithful, will stand up and will speak all sorts of things from itself on television. And then when its pastor is interviewed on television about whether Jesus is the only way to life, they'll mutter something under their breath like, well, I don't want to seem harsh. Well... You sure I can't tell you something more about our wonderful church and our music programs? No, no, I want to know about Jesus. Well, you know, this is really a delicate matter. Are you sure I can't tell you something about our architecture of our building and how many people are in our choir? No, I want to know about Jesus. And you see, the church then loses its boldness. If we are to be effective as a church, we ought not to be bold about the things of our church. We need to be bold about the things of Jesus. This is what makes a church vibrant and alive. And it's what brings vibrancy to the church and its life in all of its aspects. So they pray for boldness, but they know that they cannot have boldness without God. You see... They know they're frail. They need reminders of God's power. They don't want to go it alone. They want to know that God is with them. And so what they say is, Grant, Lord, not only to your servants to speak, but grant it, Lord, to stretch out your hand to heal. These are two parts of the same petition. They are granting... They want granted that not only they would have boldness, but that God would stretch out His hand to heal and that signs and wonders would be performed. And that they would be performed through the name of Jesus Christ. You see, they are appealing back to the great history of God stretching out His mighty arm and they know when God stretches out His mighty arm, anything is possible. The Pharaoh of Egypt with all his mighty armies and wealth, is nothing before God. The Red Sea is no barrier before God's outstretched hand. Famine and lack of water is nothing before God and His outstretched hand. The mighty armies of Assyria and Babylon are nothing. They are dust before God's outstretched hand. And so they look at this challenge and they look at it as an opportunity to see God work in a mighty way. Is that how you see our lives? Or are you tempted? Does the devil whisper in your ear? You know, 
these laws that they're passing, it means America is going to be a place where God isn't found anymore. You know, you're going to lose your ability to teach your children certain things. God is absent. He's not hearing your prayers. If you hear that voice, you say to yourself and to the devil, Get thee hence. My God is powerful. His arm is outstretched. And His kingdom is going forward. It may manifest itself in a way different than an American republic. But let me tell you this, Satan. The kingdom of God will never, ever be defeated. And they long to see this happen in their midst. They want God to place a public seal of approval on their mission. And don't lose sight of the fact that they also want to see is healing. This goes along with not praying for judgment. There's a little saying that you ought to repeat to yourself when the government or an authority gets under your skin. Saul is always to be preferred to Herod. You remember what happened to Saul? Who breathed out threats against the church? God took him and struck him Christian. Do you remember what happened to Herod? He claimed he was a god and God struck him dead. God will judge, but we are to pray that God judges by bringing sinners into His fold. We should rejoice in sinners reclaimed. This should be our goal, to see the gospel go forward, to break down barriers, to redeem the lost, to take the most wicked and to make them instruments of God's peace. This is the powerful prayer that the church of God makes. And what a wonderful blessing it is to them and to you and to me that we don't even have to turn our page to see the answer. God answers immediately. And do you notice that He answers both parts of their prayer? He answers them in reverse order. He begins by manifesting His power. They had asked God to manifest His power. And what does He do? Moments later, the whole place shakes. And the Holy Spirit fills them afresh. This is not a second Pentecost. This is not a second work of the Spirit that believers need. This is the kind of filling of the Holy Spirit that Peter experienced in the temple. It is his ability to speak the very Word of God, to go out and be the mission of the church. And now it falls on all of them afresh. Because shortly, they will be distributed. God's response is swift. But what I want you to focus on is not the house shaking. What I want you to focus on is not the Holy Spirit being, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit filling them. What I want you to focus on is the power of God in that God came down to them. God met with them. He showed them His power in His presence. And it is instantaneous. Think about the connection this church has with their God. They face a problem and instantly they go to God in prayer. And God instantly answers them.
Now, we may wait. Don't expect an instant answer to every prayer you make. It's true that God often answers prayers three ways. Yes, no, wait. But His presence is manifest to them. They see God's power and they can go out and know the divine power is on their side. But He answers the other portion of their prayer as well. They pray for boldness. And the house shook. And the Holy Spirit filled them. And they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Do you notice this? They had prayed that God would continue to be with them, and He is. And that God would continue to give them boldness, and He did. And notice what they are speaking in their boldness. God's Word. You see, we might even imagine that they would take this psalm and preach this psalm too and explain the truth of God's Word to people. And they would do it with boldness. Now this is an important thing for us to see. Because you see, the church is praying for boldness and for signs from God knowing that that boldness and those signs will bring more persecution. In persecution, essentially, they are praying for more persecution. We might wonder to ourselves if they get it. But they do. Because, you see, they know that the persecution is but for a moment. Our present difficulties, our present trials, Paul says, are but for a moment. But the kingdom of God is for an eternity. So here we have a church that is in need of the Lord. And they offer up prayers to Him and He hears them. And they ask, they beg Him for boldness to preach His Word and for the power of God to accompany them. And He answers them instantly. And so we see here that a healthy church is a church that relies upon God, not itself. That rests in God's wisdom, not its own that is willing to suffer persecution rather than avoid it, and that is willing to preach the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what. That is what makes a healthy church. It is my prayer that Christ's church remain until the Lord return. A healthy church, seeking guidance, empowerment, and boldness from the Lord and preaching Jesus Christ wherever she goes. Let's pray.